Good evening and welcome to Solidarity on Tap. My name is Chris Kerr with the Ignatian Solidarity Network. For over 15 years, the Ignatian Solidarity Network has been uniting the Ignatian family, meaning the Jesuit network, as well as those who are inspired to work for justice through the spiritual tradition of St. Ignatius of Loyola, to build a more just world through faith-based social justice formation, education, and advocacy. If you haven't already, please check out our website, ignatiansolidarity.net, and like and follow us on social media to get the latest advocacy alerts, educational resources, and much more. Now, Solidarity on Tap usually takes place in cities across the country, bringing together members of the Ignatian family. And even though we're gathering virtually tonight, the goal of Solidarity on Tap is the same, to invite people to enjoy fellowship, maybe with a drink in hand, and to hear powerful reflections from members of the network engaged in work for justice. Uh, as a community, we're holding all those people who are affected by COVID-19 in our prayers, wherever they are in the world. They're with us here tonight in prayer and in spirit. We hope this conversation provides us the opportunity to explore the important advocacy work that is being done around the world, uh, the work of walking with people, of standing with people in solidarity, the work of a hope-filled future. So with this in mind, I'm really excited to introduce our speaker tonight, Danielle Vela. Danielle serves as the Director of Reconciliation for Jesuit Refugee Service, JRS. She's also served as Publication Coordinator for JRS, Editor and Writer for the African Jesuit AIDS Network, as well as Canadian Jesuits International. She's been a reporter for Vatican Radio and a contributor to the Tablet, Times of Malta, and Asia News. And she is the author of a new book entitled Dying to Live, Stories from Refugees on the Road to Freedom. And it was just published this past year. In fact, she was here in the United States uh, this past fall uh, doing a book tour uh, at many uh, Jesuit institutions, universities, parishes uh, across the country. And so we're glad to welcome her back to the States. Danielle, thanks so much for being with us tonight. We're so glad to have you. Um, and it's it's really great to uh, really great to have you. We know that you are joining us from Malta, and in Malta it is three a.m. Right? Yeah. Yes. Very. It's either very early or very late. I'm not I'm not sure which. I'll let you decide. But I appreciate. I I saw you you grabbed a drink. So so cheers. Kind of a late night late night cheers. There we go. Excellent. And uh, we're glad you 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 uh, were able to to get up. Thank you so much for accommodating our, our uh, U.S. time zones uh, with this time here tonight. Now, uh, Danielle, um, tell us, you, you live in Malta, you live kind of, um, you know, in an island nation in the kind of southeasternmost parts of, of Europe, uh, right in between Europe and northern Africa. We see here on the map that we've put up, gives you a little sense of where Malta is. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, your island and, and help us understand you know, um, a little bit about where where you are and what's the refugee context? Where What's the significance in the context of people who are migrating uh, as well? Okay, so hi, and thanks for having me on the show. So the island I come from is a place that many people have never even heard of. So 
I welcome the opportunity to talk about it. Uh, so it is really a tiny dot in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea, a mix of a lot, a, a, a big blend of, of like, like of culture from East and West. And over the centuries, it has occupied an important strategic position uh, because it really is at a kind of cross crossroads and it was at a crossroads in the ancient world. In these days, it has become a really uh, a real hot spot, okay, uh, in the in the regional uh, migration path. Basically, uh, the asylum seekers and refugees come to Europe uh, from Africa and from the Middle East uh, via three parts, we could say, in the Mediterranean Sea. Okay, so you have the central Mediterranean route, the eastern Mediterranean route, and the western one. Each of these paths is an illegal path, uh, which is controlled by smugglers, by traffickers, and is a very dangerous path to travel on. So Malta is right on the central Mediterranean route. So the the refugees who come along this path would have traveled sometimes all the way from different countries in sub-Saharan Africa, across the Sahara Desert, Libya, and then across the sea to come here. This is not their intended des destination. They don't intend to come to a rock in the middle of the sea. What they want is to go further to reach the Euro European country of their choice. So what we get is many of those boats that you see on your screens and the media in the news, boats of people who are really desperate to find a safe place. Uh, those are the boats that show up in our waters uh, that come to our shores or that try to come. Unfortunately, many times they are not allowed to do so. So Malta as such is a border state of the EU. And in this sense, as I said, it really occupies a key place uh, in the regional migration ref refugee story. And what, um, just from your own, your own personal experience over these past couple of months, uh, what has it been uh, like for you or what have you seen for, for others just anecdotally uh, in terms of uh, the pandemic and, and the ways it's impacted your life or the life of people around you? So um, how it's impacted my life and the life of people around me, mercifully, uh, we have not been impacted uh, as an island, as a people, uh, as much as our neighbours, like it Italy, for example, which has been so badly struck. So in, both in terms of the prevalence rate and in terms of the numbers of deaths, fortunately, uh, we have been, uh, it, it's been quite light, if I can put it that that way. Uh, for me personally, it's been tough because I usually travel a lot to do my work and it's something which I get a lot of life from and I'm not able to do that at the moment. So being grounded is really tough, um, but that's the way it is for now. And, yeah. and then in terms of how it's impacted our response to refugees who are coming to seek asylum, that's a very different and sad story, unfortunately. Sure. Yeah. And and you mentioned that, um, of course, you travel a lot through your work uh, with JRS, which is, is based in Rome, but um, but has staff all over all over the world. Can you tell us a little bit of I find your your title, uh, your position 
very interesting. I'd love to learn more about it. The Director of Reconciliation, I was, we were saying earlier before we got started, it, uh, it could be taken lots of different ways, but can you tell us what it means in the context of, of Jesuit Refugee Service, where I think there's a unique take on that word reconciliation that, that the Society of Jesus, the Jesuits kind of offer up and have placed into your, your job title. Okay, thank you. So reconciliation has always been a really important part of the work of Jesuit Refugee Service since it started nearly 40 years ago now. And I'd say it would be practically impossible, I think, to work with ref refugees who are people so much impacted by conflict, by extreme violence, by the divides that there are, uh, if we don't somehow work on reconciliation at the same time as well. And in recent years, the JRS has really uh, decided to, to make reconciliation a strategic part of its mission. Um, we define reconciliation in line with the Jesuit take, which is to recreate right relationships. And we, we, we strive to do this, okay, to encourage such right relationships between refugees and the communities that host them, amongst the refugees themselves, and also among our own teams, which are frequently uh, microcosms of the context they are in. And there you see some of the workshops that we do in different countries on reconciliation, in India and in Ethiopia, precisely. So when you when you have a chance to travel, um, when when you are traveling, of course, uh, and you have a chance to visit, um, you know, locations um, where JRS is working, um, what are some of the things that you get to to do or be part of? Uh, so when I travel, usually, uh, if, if it's if it's to travel for the reconciliation work, then what we do is we go and we do work workshops, okay? And we also have a really wonderful team of resource persons uh, from within JRS and also outside from different religious and cultural backgrounds backgrounds who join us for this uh, and we go to give workshops on uh, recon reconciliation to unpackage the concept of reconciliation and to help uh, to help the workshop participants see how they themselves can become agents of reconciliation and transformation in the places where they are and to try to give them the knowledge and the skills uh, to do this you know to encourage to enhance what is already there and there is so much that is all is already there uh, so how to build on that. Something else we do, for example, uh, apart from doing workshops, is we go and we do um, an assessment on the ground to find out, okay, what is driving peace here? What is driving the conflict? Uh, and where is our in, in intervention going to fit in that? Then, of course, sometimes I also travel uh, for the work I do, like the work I've just done on the book. So to meet people, to hear their stories and to share them. Sure. And um, can you tell us a little bit more? I'm just curious how, how you got into this work. You've been with JRS for on and off for about 20 years, but but obviously have a background in journalism as, as well. Can you talk about what led you uh, kind of to, to end up uh, doing this sort of work with JRS? So my sister, uh, she's uh, uh, she works for JRS in in Malta and she's done so 
for many, many years. So uh, when I was, uh, I, I started out, my first job was as a reporter with a local newspaper. And she used to in invite me sometimes, you know, to, to meet the refugees, to do interviews with them, to write some articles about JRS. And so uh, bit by bit, I got really interested. And then when an opportunity uh, came up to apply for JRS International in a, co in a communications job, it was at the time in 1999, I applied and I got the job and the rest is history. The rest is history. All right. All right. Well, good. Danielle, I want to get to talking about the book a little bit. Uh, but before we do that, we have lots of folks watching. And one of the things I find about um, that I really enjoy about uh, when we're with our guests from Solidarity on Tap is getting to share uh, where people are watching from across the U.S. and often beyond. So we're gonna we're gonna show some of these up on the screen, and and you may there may be even be a few folks that you you recognize the names or or where they're uh, they're kind of coming from. So we we're gonna kind of say welcome to some different folks. So I want to say welcome to uh, Jackie, who's joining us from Miami, Florida, which is great. I don't know if we've had someone from Miami yet. Tiffany says hi from Dayton, Ohio. Jeannie's in Westchester, PA. Uh, Barbara says hi from Scranton, which is in Eastern Pennsylvania. So uh, Amy says, uh, watching from Southern California, she's a former Jesuit volunteer, was in Atlanta for a year, and also was an alum of Marquette University, which is up in Milwaukee. Uh, Josh Utter, who's a colleague from Jesuit Refugee Service USA, is joining us from Arizona. Welcome, Josh. Great to have you. Uh, Jackie didn't tell us where she, oh, Jackie, we heard from earlier, but she also says 3 a.m. That's amazing. Thank you. Um, so thanks for that. Uh, we have another uh, FJV from a former Jesuit volunteer from Atlanta. Um, and uh, let's see, there's uh, so many. Jeannie is joining us from St. Ignatius Loyola Parish in Sacramento, California. Welcome, Jeannie. Greg and Kim, they're former Jesuit volunteers who were in Spokane, tuning in from Portland, Oregon. Say thank you to everyone for this. Uh, Sarah's watching from South Carolina. Uh, Brogan from uh, the Nashville Jesuit Volunteer uh, Corps House. So welcome to Brogan. And hopefully we get a chance to, to share some other folks that are watching uh, in a little bit as well. Now, Danielle, let's talk about this book. It was just released. Um, you've been, you were in the States, uh, you know, uh, working, kind of working around the country, talking about the book at Jesuit universities and Jesuit uh, parishes and things like that. I'd like to hear a little more about that in a second. But, but let's talk a little bit about it. the title is Dying to Live, Stories from Refugees on the Road to Freedom. Can you tell us first, can you tell us a little bit about the title? How did you come up with that title? Okay, so when I was doing the interviews for the book, so over the years I've frequently uh, worked on such publications uh, and something that really comes to me and it came to me especially this time when I was doing the interviews for the book in different countries around the world is 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 really this title, like sort of dying to live, because the refugees leave everything that they know and everything that is dear to them to plunge into the unknown along a very dangerous path to get there, really because they feel they have no choice. They are looking literally for a life. And one refugee from Syria, I believe it was, he had told me really firmly, not a better life, just life. So they're really looking for life. And the tragic thing, the bitter irony is that in order to find that life, 
they very often lose it. They lose what they have, you know. So it's literally, they're dying to live because they must travel along such dangerous paths because they have no other choice. So that's why the title back. Can you tell us a little bit about um, some of the reasons that you learned uh, that forced people to leave the place they called home? What What are some of the reasons that people have to make that choice to, uh, you know, to risk risk life um, and, and risk losing uh, everything? Uh, why are people having to make that choice? Okay, so there are many different reasons why. And one of the things I've learned over the years is that sometimes frequently it is a combination of things that push people to leave. And then there is that straw that breaks the camel's back, you know. So I remember a refugee from Syria I met again, and he stayed in his country for many years, even as the civil war was going on he managed to stay and i always ask you know what is what what was the tipping point what was it that made you leave and this man had told me you know it was the day when a bomb fell in the playground of my child's school at that point i realized i could no longer stay so it's it's many reasons that force people to leave when writing this book some of the ones i came across were okay so fleeing from outfits like isis and uh, for example, the Taliban, and also fleeing from the bombings to get rid of them. Okay, so literally bombs exploding on your doorstep. I heard so many stories like that too. Then there are people who flee forced re recruitment into the army or into armed groups. Uh, there are people who, who flee because at, because at all costs they want to do what is right. They want to follow their faith. They want to serve people of all faiths because they want to um, because they want to stick up for their own group, you know, uh, for the rights of, of, of their group. So they do what is right and they pay a very high price for that. I was surprised how even now I came across causes of flight that I had never heard of. So, for example, I met young men in Melilla, which is a Spanish enclave in African territory in Morocco. I met young men there who fled their homes in Western Sahara, where they had been snatched from their homes as likes of kids to work in these work camps in this vast like desert where it would be impossible to find them virtually as slaves and they had managed to escape from this this was something i had never come across and this really tells me how there are so many reasons uh, of extreme violence conflict persecution that uh, are now increasingly environmental so that push people to leave everything sure and can you tell us a little bit about the the collection of the stories um where did you where did you go uh we where were you talking with people were you talking with uh people after they had been uh formally resettled somewhere or were you talking with people while they were still kind of in in transit um um you know what was it like to to talk with people about what I, it sounds like we're very harrowing very you know horrific stories in some cases of, of, of violence and um, precarious situations. T tell us about the, the collection of the stories. Okay, so uh, starting from where they were at, uh, I tried to get a cross section of stories. So people who were uh, 
just starting out on their journey, people who had been in transit for some years, which I believe is the fate of most refugees in the world now, uh, and uh, also people who had been resettled in the US. So I uh, I interviewed people in refugee camps in sub-Saharan Africa, specifically in Uganda and Ethiopia. I interviewed people in border states of the EU. So I went to the Spanish enclave of Mel- Melilla. Uh, I went to Italy. Um, and then also people who live in the heart of Europe, in France. Uh, I went to the Middle East to interview refugees in Lebanon, uh, which is one of the countries which has the the biggest refugee, like a burden, so to speak, in the world. Um, uh, So I went to different places and saw people at different stages of the journey. And I I was able to do this thanks to the amazing cooperation and help of of offices of, of JRS on the ground. And in those places where we didn't have operations ourselves, I found really great support from other NGOs. So for example, in the US, where we don't have, at least at the time, we didn't have operational projects, I, I, um, I I was hosted by IRC, the International Rescue Committee, at their resettlement agency in San Diego. And um, can you are there are there particular stories that that really uh, stick out or kind of got um, have, have stuck with you in a way that um, you know con- continues you continue to think about uh, people or, or any ones that you want to share or a story that you really feel um, yeah stuck with you. Okay, so I think it would have to be the story of one young boy from South Sudan. Uh, And I met him at a refugee settlement in Uganda in the north, so just across the border, okay, from where he fled. And uh, when he was about 16 years old, in the context of civil war in South Sudan, uh, some men dressed in army uniforms uniform, although actually they were not actually from the army, okay, uh, they were uh, they were an armed group which was fighting against the army and they came to his home, they called the family out, okay, the family of his parents, uh, him, his older sister and his younger brother and at first they wanted to rape his sister, his mother said no, and they said, okay, so you choose, it's your life or your daughter. And she chose to die, and she died in this boy's arms. Um, that is where his story of the tragedy starts. Then he was taken away with his father. He was forced to become a child soldier. He was. He never saw any of his family again from that horrible day. He was forced to kill, something he will never, ever forgive himself for. Um, he eventually managed to escape from the armed group. After a year or so of living in hell, he managed to cross the border, which is where I met him. Uh, I believe his story impresses me so much because you really see the the impact, the impact of the evil that was visited on his family and on him. You know, and and for me, I think the biggest tragedy of the story is how is just how much. 
And he, he remains such a gentle, good person who really wants to live his life, to give back, to make up for what he has done. And the tragedy is that uh, I, th- I, I well, he was struggling. He was struggling. I don't think that he had lost the the belief of the good in himself, but he was really struggling to find it. And I really hope that he manages. Uh, then he was able, ha- happily, he's been able to continue with his stud studies because he found a private sponsor to help. And in a place which is removed from the refugee set- settlements, which is important because their people still knew him and knew who he was and some even what he had done. So so for me, the story just, it's between its between despair and hope, you know, because I see the hope in him struggling to come out of that and in the help that he has been getting from some people, from some good friends there, from sponsors, which is really helping him to move forward. So that's one story that really stays with me. Thank you for that. That was, that was beautiful. Did you find that people were... Um, how did how did people receive their request to to share their story? Were people excited to talk about their story? Were they uneasy? What what kind of reception did you receive as you tried to invite people into sharing what they've experienced? Okay, um, so I would say that you usually uh, whenever I ask refugees if they want to share their story, the answer is usually yes. Even if sometimes, like you know, there are times when really um, I'm in a train station waiting them to get off one train and go on to another train, or just coming off a boat. But they will still, even if they just sit with me for a few minutes to talk about that phase of their journey and whatever, they will do. Not always, but they are usually keen to do so. And I see, I see two or three reasons for this. And the first is that you know. If they can, if they have the chance to share their story with a sympathetic ear, someone who wants to listen, to give time, this can be a really affirming experience for them. Uh, and, and sometimes even like after I've left the place, they will say to people from the JRS team there, you know, that was really good. After I shared the story, I felt like some burden had been lifted. So that's one thing. And the other thing is I really believe that, and this is where I believe in the power of storytelling in more ways than one, that the way we tell our story really shows how we make sense of our reality, how we understand ourselves and how we want others to understand us. So again, the the chance to share that story could be a way of reclaiming identity and agency, which is really threatened for refugees when they leave everything which their life has been built on. And the final reason, I think, is really that, you know, in this world, unfortunately, uh, there are so many sweeping stereotypes about refugees, about migrants, about asylum seekers, even the labels themselves, you know, about why they leave their country, about why they are coming to ours, about the risks they supposedly pose to life as we know it. And so refugees don't like this. They feel they're being stigmatized, so they really welcome a chance to set the record straight, you know, to say, no, this is my story. This is why I left my country. This is what, what my journey was like. And this is what life is like for me now. Sure. 
Yeah, that makes sense. Thank you. Um, Danielle, I want to talk a little bit about uh, your experience of coming to the States and sharing about your book and sharing those stories in a second, but we're going to take a little break um, so that we can uh, recognize our, our sponsors for Solidarity on Tap tonight. We also have a few more uh, folks that have that have let us know that they're here, so we want to um, uh, do a few more shout outs. So I want to just say hi to uh, Mary Sue, who's joining us from uh, Lancaster, New York, and is a Canisius College graduate. Welcome. Uh, Mary Sue, uh, your co uh, colleagues at Je Jesuit Refugee Service USA say that there's more on the book in the book tour at jrsusa.org. So make sure to check out that. Francisco Mena from Crispas, Christians for Peace in El Salvador, is joining us from San Salvador tonight. Welcome to Francisco. Thanks for being with us. Uh, Nicole's joining us from Pelham, uh, New Hampshire. Welcome, Nicole. Alec and Brenna, FJV is joining from Boston uh, and their recent School of Theology and Ministry graduates. Uh, Cindy uh, Rice, who is a, a, a JRS uh, USA uh, person. Welcome. Good to see you, Cindy. Greetings from North Carolina, she says. Uh, thank you, Mario says, from Atlanta, Georgia. Um, thank you from Austin, New York, from the folks at Mary Knoll Missioners. Um, so uh, lots of great folks with us. Let me tell, uh, we'll, we'll let uh, Danielle take a little break here, get a sip of wine, uh, not too much because it's late, but, um, and then and then we'll come back to you after we talk a little bit about our sponsors. So let me tell you about um, our, our sponsors. But before I do this, I wanna share um, some of the ways that you can connect with the work of the Ignatian Solidarity Network. First, I want you to make sure you know that uh, May 24th marks the fifth anniversary of Laudato Si, Pope Francis's encyclical on care for creation. You can, enjoy, you can join the Ignatian Carbon Challenge along with the Global Catholic Community from May 16th to 24th in celebrating five years of better caring for creation and envisioning a hopeful future. Activities include a Laudato Si discussion group, social media Laudato Si bingo, which sounds really exciting, and a global prayer service. So more information can be found at igsal.net slash lsweek. Um, also, we have uh, 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 another uh, live program coming up. It's uh, entitled, The Climate is Changing, So Why Aren't We? Perspectives on Environmental Activism. Uh, we'll invite young activists uh, to discuss their experiences on the front lines of environmental justice and how you can stand in solidarity with them through your actions and environmental advocacy. So you can join us on May 26th at 3 p.m. via YouTube or Facebook. Um, also tomorrow, we have a program called Good Works Responding to COVID-19. It's a broadcast that features partners from the Ignatian family working diligently to support the needs of community members through direct service accompaniment and advocacy in the wake of the COVID-19 pandemic. Our guest uh, tomorrow will be the staff from uh, La Tilma and Central Pastoral at Sacred Heart Parish in El Paso, Texas. It'll take place at 4 p.m. Eastern, so make sure to join us. Um, I'd also like to invite those who are watching tonight to be part of the Ignatian Solidarity Network's efforts to advocate for a more just world. Uh, we have a, an action alert you can take uh, take action on right now. So during this COVID-19 pandemic, there's been a series of air pollution rollbacks set in place uh, by uh, the federal government. So you can join us in calling on Congress to support legislation that would increase air pollution standards and oversight, especially for mercury and other toxic metals. And that in order to 
to improve the healthy uh, health and quality life of vulnerable populations, such as children and low-income communities who are often the most directly impacted by pollution rollbacks. You can take action right now by texting AIR, that's A-I-R, to 202-800-1541. Again, that's AIR, A-I-R, to 202-800-1541. And now let me tell you about those sponsors, okay? First is the Boston College School of Theology and Ministry, which offers an opportunity for graduate study centered on core themes of solidarity, spirituality, service, and social justice. A diverse and vibrant community supports students as they engage in theology grounded in faith and informed by lived experience. The Mary Noel Lay Missioners work intentionally with those at the margins for a more just, compassionate, and sustainable world. You can learn more about their work and join their Meet a Missioner Monday live streams on their Facebook page every Monday at 10 a.m. Eastern Time. The Jesuit School of Theology, which is located in Berkeley, California, is an international center for the study of theology with classes on campus as well as online. Dynamic, challenging, and impassioned dialogical study impels and inspires graduates to pursue ministry in a way that will transform our world. The Jesuit Volunteer Corps is a full-time volunteer program that works for social justice while exploring spirituality and faith through a framework of Catholic Ignatian values for individuals between 21 and 35 years of age. Jesuitical is a podcast from America Media hosted by young lay editors looking at the Catholic news of the week and includes guest interviews. Make sure to check them out at americamagazine.org or search for Jesuitical wherever you get your podcasts. And JVC Northwest, Jesuit Volunteer Corps Northwest, which is focused on core values of community, simple living, social and ecological justice, and spirituality and reflection. JVC Northwest is a national direct AmeriCorps program serving in 24 locales across Alaska, Idaho, Montana, Oregon, and Washington. And you must be 21 or over to be eligible for, for JVC Nor Northwest. Really quickly, if you like tonight's conversation and you want to see it again, don't worry, all right? We got you covered. It's available on YouTube or on our Facebook page. You can also find it on our website at ignatiansolidarity.net. So don't, don't fret, okay? And if you enjoyed Solidarity on Tap tonight, please consider giving a gift to sustain the work of the Ignatian Solidarity Network. You can do that by visiting our, our website, ignatiansolidarity.net. And right up in the top right-hand corner is a red donate button. Click on that and you're good to go. So thank you for thinking about offering that support and sustaining our work. Let's get back to Danielle and uh, talk a little bit about this trip to, to the United States to, to share about the book. So we talked a little bit about how uh, refugees receive you, um, inviting them to share their story. What was it like sharing their stories then with people in the States? Really good. It was really good to share the stories, first of all, because the audiences were so were so well welcoming, uh, so open to hearing the refugee stories, really showing a lot of empathy and like how can we help? What can we do? So that was really, really good. So I went Mostly, most of I went to several places. I don't think at this hour of night I could remember them all. Uh, but usually we go to Jesuit universities 
Okay, speaking at presentations, sometimes going to uh, individual classes and having this discussions with the students. I spoke in a couple of Jesuit parishes also. It was really, really good, really well organized, really good. Thank big thank you to JRS USA for do, for doing this. And for me, it was really good because after all that, you know, hearing all those stories, what you really want to do is to share them. You say, okay, the rest of the world needs to know this. They need to have this window um, on the individual Re reality of these guys you know so like the one of the latest global statistics we have of refugees around the world uh, is like 70 million so behind this huge anonymous statistic is all these individual lives you know and today it's there this is the heart of the matter you know so being able to share those stories was really really good um what what um, were there were there things that people in the states were intrigued by um, or had lots of questions of? Uh, what what surprised you about about the way people reacted to what you shared? What surprised me? Let me see. Um, I think people asked all sorts of questions. I think they also sorry wanted to. <clears throat> They also wanted to understand, okay, why people leave and what life is like uh, in the ref refugee camps in other parts of the world. <clears throat> what is the refugee re reality like? Um, so they asked many, many, many questions about this, you know, like really uh, what is life like in the camps? What is life like on the journey? Maybe what surprised me is... Um, I think maybe because I'm so steeped in this, you know, and hearing stories and having done this work for so many years, I kind of assume that people know, you know, people know all these things. Uh, but they, but of course, how can they, you know? So, which again, why it's so important to share these stories. But the, so, okay, uh, the, um, people don't know, but want so much to know, you know? So not only why people leave, but what life is like for them once they leave. And um, I would say those are the two things which come to my mind now. I mean, of course, people also want to know what can we do. That's also very much yeah. there. Yes, and speaking of that, uh, so now's the time we have some questions from, from uh, the audience. So uh, I want to ask you about that one in a second, but I want to ask you one that um, somebody asked one of our other speakers. It's kind of a random question. I don't know why they asked, but they, wanted, they asked Father Greg Boyle, who's a Jesuit priest that works with former uh, uh, people or people who've been incarcerated. Maybe you've heard of him. They asked him what his favorite ice cream flavor is. So I want to ask you, what's your favorite ice cream? Or maybe it's gelato flavor. I don't know. What What's your favorite one? What do you like out there? Dark what's that? Dark chocolate. Dark chocolate. Yes. Thank right. you. It, it's really not even ice cream if it's not doesn't involve chocolate. So I'm glad we covered that. That's really good. Um, let's talk a little bit about... Um, ways that people can act in solidarity with refugees. What are some things, uh, uh, we actually got a question from Karen. She said, what are your top three recommendations for folks who, who want to help, uh, not help with, maybe she means help decreasing the refugee crisis or helping standing in solidarity with refugees. Any, any thoughts on that for Karen? Okay, so thank you for the question. I'm, 
is I think it's really easy to feel overwhelmed if we look at the refugee crisis, the global crisis, looking at that 70 million statistic that we just saw, right? Uh, and also because there's so much hype sometimes around the ref refugee issue that it's really easy to say, okay, there, look, there is nothing I can do, okay? But I think it's really important, first of all, to overcome that and to say, no, what can I do? You know, what can I do where I am, looking at the context around me, uh, what can I do? Uh, how can I influence things in some way? What is my power here? What's my power to influence? What's my power to do? And what I would say is that, um, okay, so look at the context, get to know where you are. If there's anything you can, you can really try to do where you are. Uh, for me, that's the first step. Two, okay, what is my gift? What can I bring here? So for me, I love to write. I have always loved that. Uh, so, so that's how I try to use this gift to serve the interests of social justice, which I really want to do, um, and to find cre creative ways of doing of doing this. Sometimes it's not easily, it's not so easy to see what we can do, right? But this is why then we can turn to an, an NGOs who now really most NGOs really offer concrete ways in which we can do some something, whether it's something concrete to work with refugees who are in the communities where we are, perhaps by teaching Eng English, perhaps by mentoring, perhaps by being a friend, perhaps by giving food, perhaps by making a donation so people can have the things that they need, sometimes by ad advocating, you know, the, the, the reasons why the refugee statistics are what they are, are also because of choices made by our own government sometimes, you know, in, the, in that big world of foreign policy and international affairs. So, so what should we be lobbying our politicians on, you know, and, and how can we do that? And again, here NGOs provide so many Op options if and so here i want to mention jrs and jrs in the us has so many ways in which you can get involved so please visit their website um, which i think is jrsusa.org but that's something we can easily check out because there are so many ways in which you could be involved if there is one thing two things i would like to say more about this if there's one thing i think we really need to be advocating for around the world there are many things we need to be advocating for so that refugees have the chance to get that new life that they are dying for um but two things one thing i would say let's continue really to advocate to push to call for people to have safe channels to seek the protection that they need and for borders to be open to them Okay, this is one thing we really need to be pushing for. And uh, and this unfolds, okay, uh, how we fight for this uh, unfolds in different ways around the world. Um, and the other thing is sharing stories, the power of sharing stories. You know, again, behind the statistics, behind the hype, there are individual stories, which often move like the people and change their hearts more than anything. So sharing stories, sharing stories, getting to know stories and sharing them. That's great. Uh, thanks for that, Danielle. Uh, we had another question from Tiffany. You, you mentioned uh, before I share it. Uh, you mentioned that you know in in many countries, um, you know there are policies being established to really keep uh, refugees from having access to resettlement or to uh, to keeping people from from entering. Tiffany asked, how would you how would you engage with people 
that might be resistant to learning more about the situation of refugees. And so I'm thinking specifically of some in the United States, uh, you know, with a currently more nationalistic kind of mindset. Any thoughts on how to how to engage in in this current reality where there are folks that are more resistant to uh, uh, being empathetic towards refugees? Okay, so so for that, I'm I'm going to ref I'm going to a uh, bit of broken record script. Go back to something I said, sure. um, which is okay. So much some sometimes I think much of that response, much of the nationalistic res res response, is really based on stereotypes. Really, really, really. So I think. I think sometimes lots of governments and media can get away with a lot simply by repeating stereotypes and by hyping up fear. Fear of what we don't know, fear of what we see to be different. So this is why, again, it is really key to look at the individuals behind the stereotypes, the individuals behind the hype, and to listen to their stories because it is in the heart of this personal encounter that people say, hey, just a second, you know, but this guy is a refugee and look at all these things I've been hearing, you know, something doesn't match here. And here I, I'm really quoting also the refugees them, themselves. So when you read the book, you will also see, and this came a lot actually from refugees who were resettled in the US, but not only, saying, look, uh, listen to my story, you know, listen to my story. I think, again, I'm quoting a young man from uh, from, I think, Pakistan, who is resettled in the U.S. now, a remarkable young man, saying, you know, uh, if people had to listen to the story, I think they'd have a much different picture to the one that they have. So just listen to the story behind. Mm -hmm. so Thank, you. Thank you, Danielle. Uh, here's another question from uh, Naeem. It says, Danielle, you're doing amazing work. Please tell us what motivates you to do this work every day. Uh, what 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 gets you up in the morning? Not hopefully at three a.m. in the morning, but normally. But what gets you up in the morning, Danielle? <laughs> what gets me up in the morning is that I love what I do. I really love it, and I uh, I I look forward to doing it. It's very difficult, challenging work, but I can't imagine myself doing anything else. And as soon as I finish one project, I'm wanting to start another one or working on two or three at the same time. What motivates me? I think is really, I think is really a faith in God, a faith in God, and a, a faith that does justice. Okay, so a faith that is not faith if it doesn't issue injustice, especially uh, injustice that kind in some way supports people who are marginalized and in need. And so, I think really that is what mot motivates me. Have you seen anything? You've been working with JRS in one way or another for for you know around twenty years. Have you seen, um, would you say there are changes that you have seen uh, in, in the world related to refugees, whether it's um, how refugees are perceived or how uh, the, the network of organizations that walk with refugees uh, have changed their approaches or anything about wh where you saw things 20 years ago and what you see now that you feel is significantly different? Well, I think that numbers are increasing. That's for sure. The numbers are climbing. Uh, that's one thing. Um, and the other thing is, I do believe, but this is my belief, okay, uh, from what I see, that we are looking at a world where, you know, um, a pretext of security concerns in many cases, and really a, um, a harping on what makes us different, 
not the humanity we share, uh, and other re re reasons also. We are looking at a world which is increasingly hostile to ref re refugees, where the barriers are getting higher, where the walls are getting higher. There is also, which is very worrying in recent years, again, a shift towards nas nationalism, which one of the questions has noted, um, you know, a shift towards right wing, a shift towards nas nationalism, and a shift towards enclosing ourselves off. And unfortunately, this is something which the COVID-19 has high highlighted, I believe, much as it's really brought out in a way the best in people, you know, which shows of sol solidarity and generosity and what can we do to help. It's also, in a way, shown up, you know, that sometimes this kind of like sort of tolerance that everyone has is a veneer at times. And when the push comes to shove, then, you know, uh, who are we going to help? And I think uh, the pandemic has shown uh, uh, where ref refugees are concerned, sometimes it's been used as a pre pretext to close borders even more, to limit access to protection even more, and to abuse the rights of refugees even more. Mm. Thank you so much uh, for that, Danielle. And, and thank you so much for um, your time with us this, this evening, for uh, getting up uh, so early to be with us. Um, it's really a, a grace. We're so grateful for the book you've, you've written, uh, Dying to Live, um, Stories from Refugees on the Road to Freedom. I hope people will, will seek that book out as a as a way of coming up to understand uh, the realities that refugees face and, and to find the same hope and, and energy uh, from their stories that you have found and, and continue to find in your work. Um, I want to say thank you to all those who've joined us tonight, for those who shared uh, all the different places in the country and beyond that you've um, you've been with us for, the, to those who've shared questions, really grateful for your participation and engagement, for the sense of community that you created for all of us. So thank you to everyone who was, um, who was with us. And um, Danielle, uh, again, thank you. Thank you for being with us. We hope you get a good rest of, of the night's, the night's sleep uh, there in Malta before, before the sun rises uh, quickly. So again, uh, thanks to everyone for joining us uh, for Solidarity on Tap this evening. We hope you join us next uh, week. Um, our uh, next week will be uh, joined by um, uh, uh, another great guest, Olga Segura, who's a freelance writer and on race and culture, um, wrote for a, a few years uh, for America Media. And then we'll move to a summer schedule because uh, it's, it's almost summer. It's starting to feel warmer. Um, and we'll have a solidarity and tap. We'll move to an every other week schedule. So we'll be excited to bring some great guests uh, to be with us over the summer. So thank you again for joining us uh, at solidarity and tap and have a great night.